This is Thomas DePolo. Hey, this is Melon Bread. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. Tonight on The Green Box, Jake asks Melon, Tom, and myself how we use audio in tabletop games to enhance atmosphere and immersion. First, though, we discuss what Tom refers to as plate spinning. So, uh, I've got a question for you guys. Played in a couple of games of yours, Melon, Will, you guys use sound effects and music to great effect in your games. I sadly do not. Uh, what am I missing out on, and how can someone learn how to use music and get started using music to enhance the mood of an RPG session? My first piece of advice is don't build anything if you're playing online that absolutely depends on it, because there is a chance, no matter what platform you are using, that it will just not work. So that's my first piece of advice, is that don't, don't ever build something that absolutely will not work if you don't have an audio asset. But once you get that, once you get over that hurdle, there's all kinds of fun things you can do. Well, you made a couple of uh, monster noises, right? I did, yes. I have done some sound effects for monsters and stuff. Um, when I ran Beyond the Mountains of Madness, I put together a library of like Shoggoth trumpet noises. And that was that was pretty cool. That I, I that that uh, my players really appreciated that. What I would do is I would uh, I would play them like very very low, so they would sound like really far away, like add some echo, so they'd sound like from like in tunnels and stuff. This was an in-person game, so what I could do is I could play it like really really quiet, and then if anybody just happened to be listening, they go, "What the hell was that?" How did uh, how did the players react to it? Pretty positively, it helped. Positively, yeah, yeah, they uh, they they enjoyed it. First, they were like, "Oh wow, what? That's a weird sound. What, what was that?" And then after they figured out what was making the sound, every time they'd be like, "Oh my god, not again." Here's the problem with doing something like that online, because I've done this before. I had a game where um, the theme was like phantom sounds that happened in the background while the the uh, players were uh, doing stuff and got loud and louder over the course of the game. The problem is that if the players think that they're hearing stuff, um, their first assumption is usually that something's wrong with their audio settings. So if the music is playing faintly in the background, they think they need to adjust their Roll20 audio or adjust their Discord. So the the um, the diegetic sound that's you know heard faintly in the background becomes a what people people think it's a troubleshooting problem. It's like how some uh, TV shows that have shit saying like don't adjust your settings. This is how it's supposed to look. But if you put that on the screen when you're running it, it gives away the whole thing. It says that something special is happening. Well, here's here's the thing. I I do put that on my screen. the the, the landing page of my Roll Twenty page says adjust your audio to cap to this this music to this uh, bass level, and then I play music. That's why I do that. You designed a lot of, of a lot of sound effects. Um, I didn't do that. What I did was I got a bunch of mine ready made because um, through a hundred percent legal and above board means, I got all the sound effects from some of my favorite video games. I got Killer Seven and Half Life Two, which have two of my favorite soundscapes of all time, and. I'm pretty sure that none of that stuff, maybe maybe the Half-Life ones, but I kind of doubt the Killer7, um, like, the scream of the man trapped in Garcian's trailer <laughs> is going to be in the SoundCloud copyright archive of the robot that searches to ban you. So I feel like we could play that and the Heaven Smile laugh. <laughs> because those are two of my favorite fucking sound effects of all time. And I love throwing those in in situations where it's appropriate, where, like, uh, 
I was running Autark Sunrise. Autark Sunrise is an adventure about exploring the Imperial United States building. And so every floor is a different fucked up adventure. And there was one, um, there was one floor where the players got the landing of the staircase that had been repeating fractally. And I was like, all right, you guys are on the landing. And they're like, they're discussing what they wanted to do next. And then I just started playing this, the heavy breathing sound as though from the other side of a metal door. And then they decided they want to leave. So, you know, the, the, the lesson here is, I guess, if you have something that you have an audio asset for that's packaged that you can use that, you don't always have to make your own. I think it's good to make your own if you have something that you really want to use. And, um, one of the, one thing that I've done in the past, uh, it's not like masterful audio engineering, is that if I have a piece of music that doesn't loop properly, but is set up so that it could be looped, to just cut off the part where it fades out so that it just goes in a circle. Because um, looping, you, you, having a looping ambient track that fits a specific theme is good for running RPGs. Yeah, I cut tracks like that all the time. It's pretty easy to do, too. Um, if you don't have a whole lot of experience with audio editing, that's actually a good way to get... To, to practice is to, to find a track that doesn't loop that could and then make it loop i think i know how to do that because uh i've used audacity a little bit is that the program that you use or are there other programs you'd recommend for people it's only the program that i'd use because i'm familiar with it and it's open source i'm sure there's others but yeah this one i used and i've been reliably informed that it's uh it's on both both windows and mac so there you go Basically, all you really need to do is think of um, a few things that you're pretty sure are going to happen in the game and just have like a, maybe one or two um, music pieces for those things. So if you have an NPC who you have a piece of music that you like for or uh, maybe an area that you know people are going to go to or maybe a fight that's going to happen with somebody, you can try and pick a song that fits that. Yeah, I like having music change or a new ambient soundtrack whenever I the players move to a new location, just as kind of a, I don't know, like what would be a cut in a movie, just showing the transition. What you got to do is, uh, if you've got something that you know is time-limited, such as a, you know some kind of vignette or alternate sequence, um, you know, your character is, is having a vision or a dream where they're inhabiting someone else's body, they're remembering a past event, uh, anything of that nature, you can key that to a music track that, takes a specific amount of time like five minutes four minutes whatever and then jump back to the present day in the present moment when the track is complete and jake is right that it's a very fun and useful tool um if it's a track that that is very strongly associated with the set piece then the players will really enjoy it so the example that we had is um to it's like playing um i don't know like calm trues or something for like an 80s club sequence uh, I picked that because I don't actually know that many um, 80s synthwave artists. I would only know like the fucking millennial Lee Eben neon 80s meme revival synthwave artists. Is that, is that a shot at Ross Payton? Um, it wasn't intended as a shot at Ross Payton. It was actually intended as putting the gun in my own mouth. But <laughs> um... Here's the thing that I did with audio. Uh, Jake, you'll, you'll remember this from when I ran... Actually, Jake and Melon, you'll both remember this from when I ran Owl's Head Mountain. Uh, I, had, I found a pretty cool like forest ambient track had like some like wood leaf noises and like wind through trees and like little little animals and birds and stuff and i played that uh, in the background and then uh included in that were like just just randomly like like uh leaves rustling and like branches snapping and at, at that point in in the adventure um some of the players would hear that and they go shit was that is that a thing i don't know what you're talking about and i would i would also have like a branch snap that i would play like manually 
So what you're telling me is this is a pretty fun way to like gaslight players to uh, mess with yeah get into the, the yeah because because they they weren't sure whether it, whether it was me doing that it was just part of the ambience or like or what I wasn't in that game but I'm 100 percent sure it was you because I played in Viscid when you ran it I did that in Viscid too didn't I and I remember that fucking crow or raven whatever the bird was oh yes that was so good every time you guys would mention the birds. <laughs> I think even when we were doing it out of character, every time we talked about the stupid bird, there was something. I use audio to great effect when I ran music from a darkened room as well. Uh, Dennis suggests Moonlight Sonata for the creepy piano music. I actually prefer. Um, it's the save room theme from the Resident Evil. Uh, I like that one for the ambience of the house itself, but for the creepy piano music that plays from the basement or from from outside in the street, I prefer Metamorphosis. Philip Glass. I, I think that's a better fit for the mood. Uh, Moonlight Sonata is so overplayed. We can talk maybe just about sound fonts that we use for certain concepts. What is what is a sound font? Maybe we can talk about the, the concept of sound fonts themselves. I I think that it, and this this is what I use the word to mean. Is it to mean a specific set of things that sound similar that you use for a certain concept? Set of things that sound similar? Yeah, so um, everyone knows that I like... Uh, the caretaker a lot for um king and yellow adventure or similar um i have cribbed very heavily from other stuff on this like um the idea of using uh childishly fresh eyes for a bar scene is something that i stole from an abortive adult swim stop motion animated show called the shivering truth um all you're going to want to do is get back there is one of my favorite songs from that genre and that's one that I've seen a lot of people associate with that concept for a good reason. Doesn't sound like anything to me. It's funny because those those ones are like I wonder I wonder if you'd get copyright struck because they're already so fucking heavily sampled and distorted. That's the one criticism that people come up with of the guy is that he's basically he's he's making like good stuff, but a lot of it is just I'm gonna take this, chop it up, and slow it down. Well, maybe, but I mean that's that's what I do to make sound and stuff. Which I mean, you know. I didn't realize that Leland Kirby was also Ubisoft. Heyo, but I mean, I, I do that all the time when I when I make like when I did um, my abortive attempt at a French Canadian Carcosa scenario. I sampled some fucking traditional French Canadian accordion music and added a whole bunch of distortion effects. So that that's my sound font for that particular game concept. Is that I like to use that music. Uh, I I have been known to use like Mongolian throat singing for for elder things. You know, because of the association with like. Siberia. So you guys are talking about like ambient tracks and stuff, right? Yeah, most of the most of the, you can do an ambient music for when stuff's not happening, and then you can usually pick like a battle theme from a video game or something for an exciting event. Because one of the things that I I um, Tom Tom tell us about movie soundtracks and why those are not always the uh, the cream of the crop. The thing I figured out from watching and playing with you and Will, who use a lot of game soundtracks, is that. Movie soundtracks, because they're synced up to a specific scene and set of events, like the pacing and the beat will sometimes get away from you. It'll start to speed up when nothing interesting is happening during the game, or it'll start to slow down or fade out when something interesting is starting to happen. Whereas in a game soundtrack, those things are made to loop and bleed into each other fairly easily because you can't control the player's pace and so individual tracks they loop easily but they also tend to reflect a certain mood or activity like this is when you're just bumbling around this is when you're getting into a fight 
this isn't when something spooky is happening or you're going into a new area. Yeah, it's much. It's a much cleaner fit for uh, an RPG that you run uh, using dice instead of a, com- a computer system. Uh, the thing about that also is that um, one thing that I've I've learned from using uh, running a game over the internet is that it's difficult to tell whether the music will always be synced for the other people on the line. So you don't usually want to do anything that depends on things changing at a specific moment in a track. The one exception being that if you um, set things up to switch from one to another at a specific point. With respect to film soundtracks, um, that is usually true, but there are exceptions. Um, for instance, if you can find, if there's a particular piece from a film score that's for a fairly for a scene with a fairly consistent like rate of tension and like mood, like for instance, uh, the cornfield mute theme from, from Interstellar, it's fairly consistent. Then you can use that, and that's a pretty long track too because it was a long ass scene. Or not the cornfield when he's when he's going for the fucking walk with um, with Matt Damon through through the ice fields or whatever. Yeah, I don't mean to say that you can't use movie soundtracks. I just mean... No, just that you should be careful about it, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot harder for me to find tracks that work as well as ones from game soundtracks. Like, I love the soundtrack to the movie The Witch, and I think I've talked about it a little bit before, but the problem, but the thing about the Witch soundtrack is that a lot of the tracks kind of build up into this kind of... this kind of wordless toneless uh wailing and then once it reaches a climax it just stops and so i've tried to kind of i've occasionally used them in games and i've tried to pick pick up the pace a little bit with my gm narration and push things along but then that comes to things where uh it just deflates when you realize you're in the abandoned house and that tense wailing didn't really lead up to anything okay i've absolutely had cases where i've i've like been like trying to play a track and synchronize something but then um like you know a player wants to to ask a series of questions or do a really long description of their action or whatever and then i realize you know they probably either they can't even hear it or like it's obviously not having the same effect on them as it is as i thought it would so me trying to force it is not gonna produce the desired effect i need to back off because you know i'm not gonna cut someone off to hear music when the only when the only way they can play the game is by talking I can think of another film soundtrack that has a lot of wailing in it. Part of the Sea? No, I never oh. heard of it. The movie about Moby Dick. It's a fucking pun. God damn it. Wailing? Is this the one with Chris Hemsworth in it? Came out like last year, the year before? Yeah, yeah. Has has a lot of wailing in it. Uh-huh. God damn it. Yeah, okay. Strike, strike, strike through the mask. This is the thing behind the mask I chiefly hate. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, wh- that is something you have to be careful about is is uh, using a recognizable track and having the players associated with the source material rather than the the, yeah, the mood you're trying to create. But like you can also you can also use that to your advantage if you are trying to evoke a very specific mood. Yeah, like uh, you know, um, Vietnam War stage. It ain't me starts playing. Yeah. Or excuse me, uh, it did not it not grug. Excuse me, uh, yeah, it not grug. Grug no grug no am chieftain son. Yeah. Or uh, better better yet, green text be born. Some folks are born starts playing. Yes. We're gonna get some comments about that about what the name of the song really is. But um, what's the one called from two thousand one that plays whenever the fucking model that shows up? That's a really good one to evoke a kind of like eerie atmosphere. Also, Spexithera. Oh yeah, yeah, that right. one. I think it's good to use um, like a nice song or a very contemplative type of song, maybe a sad song when you run a game. 
Uh, I think most of the principles, by the way, most of the principles I think we're talking about right here can apply to most games, not just Delta Green. Because Delta Green might be about horror and atmosphere and stuff, but just the concept of generally... Um, I think most of the rules we have here are applicable elsewhere, like don't use stuff with, with, with lyrics if you're going to play it really loud, because then the players can't actually hear the conversation. Yeah, I would never pick a song for the lyrics. I would pick a song with lyrics because I like the tune, and then play it just loud enough. You can tell there is a voice, but you can't understand what they're saying. I've sometimes used uh, music with lyrics, but I typically only use it for ambience if, if I'm like... If someone is in like a public place, like a like a like a pub or something. Yeah, I've done that too, where it's diegetic. Like if the players are in a bar, I might have ZZ Top or something playing really low. Diegetic, that's a good word. Yeah, diegetic means it's happening inside the mise en scène. The other use of a music with lyrics is if I have an adventure that's named after something, I try to play the song it's named after during the end credits. Like uh, Baby on Board by the B Sharps or uh, Octodad. Oh, I've used Baby on Board for for Carcosa. You know, because of that line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was going to be the alt title of the one that I did for um, uh, Winter Pepper. Was going to be the little yellow sign can't be ignored. Wow. Yeah. Great. Just fucking do construction work at six forty in the fucking afternoon. It's just really ironic. We're getting all these sound effects while we're talking about this topic. I'm going to keep that one in. That, that's a good segue because uh, you guys have been talking about movie tracks and video game tracks but what about just straight up sound effects i told you that my favorite soundscape from a video game is um killer seven so if i ever need someone laughing or screaming i got it fucking handled and also like one or two monster sound effects from half-life 2 although i've stopped using those because people recognize them from that game and like we've said earlier that can take people out of the the game or just make them actually obnoxious about it can you like tweak those though can you make them sound like they're deeper or faster or lower oh i absolutely could but um people would still recognize it and if they didn't recognize it it'd be because they'd mixed them so much that i lost the properties that i liked about them at that point you're better off just doing your own thing i think so you send fix for monsters people laughing what else gunshots gunshots um for for ambient stuff like um creaking floorboards and music from a darkened room wind howling through the, the miskatonic pass beyond the mountains oh have you guys heard here's one i can actually include because i'm pretty sure it's actually creative commons but the nasa recording of radio noise from saturn It's uh, interesting because I just read something a little while back about NASA. Uh, everything that they record, video, audio, uh, photos, it's all free for the public to use and you can search it. You had a you had a problem with mixing static, if I remember correctly. You said that um, that any realistic, that actual real static doesn't sound like static to um, to the people listening. Wait, did I? Um, I don't. I just remember that that you were trying to mix something using a voice line that I recorded for you, and you played it for me, and I said the static could be louder, and you say it's hard to get static to be good without sounding artificial. I wish I could remember why specifically I said that because that does sound like something. I remember saying that. I don't remember the thought process that led me to that. Maybe I was talking about the difference between like white noise and radio static because radio static isn't pure white noise. It's not even atmospheric noise. It's I forget what exactly causes it, but it has to do with the interaction of radio waves in the upper layers of the atmosphere. Gene. What? 
in Tim Powers Declare, radio waves work by gaining the gaining the approval of the, the gene that live in the heavy side layer of the atmosphere. I see. Okay. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, I was just fooling around on the NASA website. They have like everything you'd need for like launch noises and blast offs and uh radio like contact and It'd be cool to use those in Black Sad, I think. Kevin had a recording of one of the one of the Atlantis missions, the the uh, like the the Capcom audio feed, and he played it during uh, the the setup for for Black Sad. It's pretty dope. The Capcom audio feed. Did it sit on its intellectual properties for thirty years and do nothing with them? Boom. No fucking publisher is safe on this show. Not even Arc Dream. As we've demonstrated. How will Capcom ever recover? Well, I mean, they probably won't if you've seen their financials. Oof. So, I don't really use these, uh, you know, sound effects in my games. I think I want to, but uh, all I could really offer here is that uh, one video game that really stuck with me that uses sound effects is L.A. Noir. When you first arrive on scene and you're kind of looking around, there's like musical clues, like whenever the camera pans across, you know, there's like a trash can with the gun poking out of it or uh, some like catches shell casings on the ground. There's like musical cues. It's like a uh, hi-hat drums. The ping, a pinging sound yeah. and, and so on. Yeah, that's a pretty neat concept whenever, you know, kind of helps. Uh, and there's that, that smooth, smooth kind of uh, noir sounding jazz in the background. That really captures the the mood of the era there, and it also kind of uh, plays into like the, the the fact that it's a game that they can put those like freeform like uh, snare drums and the hi hats uh, whenever you find a clue. It's something I think I'd like to use for obvious reasons. That's difficult to do um, in this format, but yeah, you can you can kind of do audio cues when a clue comes up. You can you can get the synchronization right. Easier to do in person than online for reasons previously discussed. Is there like a, a soundboard app or anything that you guys use? No, I just queue shit up in my media player and play it over the speakers. If I'm going to do that stuff, I will have the cues prepared beforehand. I don't kind of come up with them on the fly. I think, as Melon mentioned at the beginning of the segment, it's a little high risk because you don't always know if your audio is going to suddenly break and the players won't hear it or it won't be synced up. I would use the analogy of um, if you've ever like been in like a business or academic setting and had someone try to play a YouTube video from a fucking PowerPoint. Oh my god, yeah. It's painful, man. Be there for like fucking 20 minutes waiting for it to figure out. It's even out. worse when they don't have the video pulled up. So they open up like Internet Explorer and then they type in Y-O. They type in YouTube all the way. But, that, but not only that... They go to YouTube, they navigate the ad plays, they watch the video, then they minimize it, and then the next video audio plays in the background with the audio, and then they don't know how to open it and like cl- and like close the tab. That's good. This is why you test first. This is why you like you know I would I would just I mean here's here's the thing though you can test it a thousand times and it's not gonna work when you when you go up there like my advice is don't put YouTube videos in your PowerPoint presentation. I mean that's the real that's the real advice here. Yeah, thank you for coming to our uh, business development show. Um, coming up next, we're talking. We're talking about how to maximize your third quarter projection analysis spreadsheets. Um, but first, uh, here's a word from our sponsor. I'm trying to remember how I got started. I think how I got started was I played a couple of games on Roll Twenty with some people, and I was, and then I started looking around how to run my own. I was like, oh hey, there's a jukebox feature. This other guy I never use it. I should play around with this. Maybe maybe I could do something cool with some audio here, and then I did. And 
it was it was a huge hit and they were like oh that's that's really cool you can also use a discord bot i know will you tried that once and you had mixed results uh yeah it wasn't wasn't so great sometimes you can use um if you if you want to like deal with the same synchronization issues as as i was talking about with roll 20 you can try and use um a sync tube which is where it, it plays a youtube video in the background that everyone is is ostensibly um in the same place app because it's a, it's like a streamed version of a youtube video where it's broadcast at the uh the same moment in time for everybody as opposed to other things which are broadcast into the future or the past because they go at various percentages of light speed all you're gonna want to do is get back there base tachyon poster uh my main my main last thing i want to say is don't be too precious about using sound um if you realize that you're not um like you don't have it set up properly um very occasionally it's worth delaying the game for but usually it's not um i've had cases where i've kind of stalled while i made sure i had something set up in the in the software and sometimes it's worth it and sometimes it kind of doesn't matter so it's like it's like pausing the game to look up a rule sometimes it's very important because it's literally life and death for somebody but oftentimes you can just hand wave it and 90 percent of the time it doesn't matter test beforehand too don't don't ever test live so whether you're doing online or in person, you should always test your setup before the actual game and work out as many kinks as you can, because something's going to break at, at game time. Like if you're trying to Chromecast something or use speakers in real life, then you're going to need to figure that shit out beforehand. If you're somewhere where you're using a laptop or a, a cordless uh, speaker, you're going to want to make sure you have a full charge. I I do actually have a question for you guys. Um, I assume that at Gen Con, people don't typically use audio because you're playing in a a very an already very loud space with um, where the hazard is that if one person starts being loud, then everyone else needs to be loud in order to make themselves heard, and then it it um, only exacerbates the problem. That tends to be true. Um, last year, the Delta Green room that was set aside was actually pretty quiet. Like there was usually more than what through two or three groups in there. Four, at least I, four tables at the most, yeah. There may have been more during peak hours, but when I was running my games, it was fairly quiet. And I had a little Bluetooth speaker that I brought along, and I did use audio. But uh, that, that very much depends on, on where you're playing. Like, if you're playing out in the hallway, that's not going to fly, because it's going to be too loud. To roll back a little bit, it's high risk, but it's also high reward, I feel like. That raven from Viscid has stuck with me all this time. I'm always going to remember that. I remember I went also when I ran The Old Buck Lives Again. Was that the one where it was raining and you had the rain noises? That was a sequel to that one. Rain noises is good ambience. In The Old Buck Lives Again, there was a point where your the players were being stonewalled from trying to get into the basement of a bookstore. And when they pushed through and went down there, they had been told that the basement was full of really rare books and no one was allowed down there because they might be damaged. But as soon as you they went down, they heard like water dripping from the ceiling around the room. And I think it was Melon actually pretty quickly pointed out, wait, why were they, li- they must have been lying to us. Why were they telling us the books are so fragile when this place is practically flooding? I think that that sequence was good. I am a little disappointed that you didn't quite get to use the steam flash cooking set piece in uh, Tomrot for when the basement interacts adversely with the summoned fireball when it floods, but you know it's one of those things where you can't force the set piece to happen. I, I agree with Tom though. Having having a good audio cue um, to set something up. Uh, the main thing is to make it if if it's something that you want them to hear, it has to be uh, pretty overt because it's like it's like any other clue in a game. If you make it really really subtle, they're just gonna not notice it or they're gonna assume it's part of the background. It's like any other clue in an RPG type game. 
Yeah, and like anything else, if you're that excited about it, just don't make it optional. Just push it in front of them and make sure that's what happens. Uh, I think at the start, Jake, you asked about just getting started with it. Yeah. The way I started was I just figured out a track I liked that seemed to work for a given location, and I would just play that the first time the agents came to a new location. And I think that just might be a good way to start. Pull a handful, doesn't even have to be like more than two or three or four maybe, and just whenever the players show up somewhere new, uh, let them listen to that. You don't need a whole detailed soundscape, just something to set the atmosphere. And then as you grow more confident in it, you can try to layer things together or get more detailed. I read an article recently about uh, the last Mission Impossible movie and about how basically praising it for being uh, a really good action movie. And one of the things that really got to me was that uh, some of the description and the blow-by-blows of the action scenes to make you realize why they work on a narrative level. And that appeals to me because I feel like I really suck at action scenes and combat in Delta Green. So... Uh, I can summarize it for you guys, or if you guys want to talk about some of the things you do in action scenes to make them exciting for your players. I had two, uh, two, two comments. One, for people listening in the future, after Mission Impossible 50s come out, this is talking about Fallout, which I think is number six or seven. Just in case people were curious what we meant by the last. Uh, and then I'm also curious, do you feel like you're uh, not great at running combat as a handler or as participating in it as a player or both? As a handler, I feel like it's kind of, I feel like combat is a last resort for me, where if I don't know what else to do, I will just throw up my hands and have people confront the players with guns. Because I think we should uh, try to keep a, a mindset about as a player, there's stuff you can do in combat uh, more than just uh, I roll to attack that group of people, dice roll. Uh, I think I hit them. Here's the damage. Uh, and if the players get really engaged, I've found that that makes me a better runner at the time. Because they take away some of the narrative lifting. But that's more of a general thing. So I'm definitely curious about what you thought about this article. The article, it lays out two really... It lays out two general principles. Uh, the first one is plate spinning. Which is the idea that in an action scene, there are multiple problems that the players need to address. And clear objectives where the players have a very clear sense of what they're trying to do. And combat or whatever the action scene is is a result of someone very physically trying to stop them from completing that. I would imagine it's multiple problems of different types. So you're in a car, you're being chased by some guys, and you need to defuse the bomb, and so on and some such. A good example is that, spoilers for Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, his example is the last scene where one character is trying to defuse the bomb, and two characters are in a fist fight with somebody, and Tom Cruise is chasing somebody else down in a helicopter. There's multiple things that are trying to get done. They're trying to get done. Amazing scene, by the way. Uh, and I think that's that's definitely somewhere where I agree with you that I kind of fall down a little bit as a handler because it's as soon, as soon as I add combat to the mix, my brain goes into trying to track all the combat. So I free, I start to right. I don't stand top of all the little things like making sure they still remember they're in a car, the car is moving or the car is shaking, and adding that to the combat. I tend to. Once combat comes out, that tends to be my primary focus. Uh, and I think it's not as great as it could be. Yeah, so that is really my 
my objective is I'm trying to learn how to make that sort of thing more exciting rather than, oh, I guess we'll just do this now. So, Melon, you've you've probably, uh, actually, I want to say, you've handled more than we have. Uh, you've run more games just in the aggregate. So do you feel like you've got combat down? Do you have room to improve? Or how do you want to improve? Or what are your thoughts? No, I hate, I hate running combat because inevitably I have to draw a map because the players are never able to keep the descriptions I give them straight in their heads. And um, it, I used to think it was them not listening, and to some degree it probably is. But if I'm the common factor in all these games, then it's got to be something I'm doing. At least, at least I'm at least partially responsible and possibly even entirely responsible. So no, I don't like running combat because inevitably it's never it's unless unless the fight is over so quickly that it doesn't matter. Inevitably, people are gonna are gonna get in dispute about where the physical locations of objects are, and then I've got to draw a map and start bringing tokens into the mix. And that's something that's much easier at a real life table because everyone can see the same thing. And rather than having to use the mouse and an application to fumble with a bunch of stuff, you can just grab, you know, a handful of coins or monopoly pieces or whatever and throw them on a piece of paper. Or in my case, I actually have one of those grids or whatever that people use. But either way, I always try to get by without having some kind of physical representation of the location. I always try to do theater of the mind and it never works. It always ends up having to go back to drawing some map or something. I can definitely relate to that. I know uh, one of the things that I've tried to do sometimes is kind of have some of those maps ready to go. But I think where that, even if you're an expert uh, mouse map drawer or you pre-plan your maps, the problem with Delta Green uh, is that unlike a game like Dungeons and Dragons Fourth Edition, you don't have all these detailed rules for how to interact with the map, or even like, even like the Star Wars RPG where you know what the range rings are, do you have narrative ways to move around or mechanical ways to move around rather. Delta Green, I mean, I know you have speed and you have actions you can take, but there really isn't much of a, it's not a minis game, so there aren't a lot of minis related things, so there's a lot well, of places the th- where Well, the thing is, down. is that I can't draw a detailed map for every possible place that someone could fight, because anyone could at any moment say, I pull a gun out and shoot the case officer, or I pull a gun out and shoot the other player, or I pull a gun out and fire into the air, causing the police to converge on my location, or any of that stuff. I can, I can guess what I'll need, but at the end of the day, it would be could look like anything yeah for sure and, and i think the what I'm, this what i'm trying to say is that even if you could draw a map for every situation it doesn't solve your problem because the system doesn't play as well with maps as as you would expect so i almost feel like when you get down to drawing a map you've kind of lost the initiative but i understand that sometimes you have to because you need to explain where the car is going or where the plane is crashing or you know where the what, whatever so uh, pr- pretend pretend you're playing with a bunch of players who don't who get it or even, or even that it just seems to be a quick firefight, so you don't need to have a, a huge detailed map. But if you still want to have, do you still try to have multiple plates in the air, multiple challenges at the same time, or do you tend to try to, do you tend to focus in on the combat, get it over with, and then move back to whatever was happening? Oh, I'm absolutely on the side of focusing on the thing you're doing, get it over with, and move back to whatever's happening. Because when I have encounters where there's a lot of stuff going on, and monsters have a lot of HP, or there's a lot of enemies, or anything that makes it take a long time. The players start getting distracted and bored, and we start to lose the lose the thread. I wonder if that's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy. Because if uh, and hear me out here, if they had more things to interact, if each player was trying to interact with their own thing, one guy was trying to work on the bomb, one guy was trying to fly a helicopter, one guy was trying to shoot. They're not all just trying to shoot the bad guys. They maybe would stay more engaged. I think the other problem here is that Delta Green is a game where the best action ninety nine percent of the time is I discharge my weapon at the enemy. In terms of just, like, the way the action economy works, you can't do much other than stand there and shoot. 
unless you're willing to give up, basically give up your action for other reasons. So it's it's a it's this case where everyone says, oh, this is supposed to be a game about you know using your brain and thinking and so on. But in a lot of these encounters, be it with other you know human being enemies or with a lot of the monsters in the published modules, the answer is oftentimes I roll firearms until it goes away. So I would love for combat encounters, and maybe this is maybe this is me being bad at running the game. You can that certainly seems to be what you're insinuating. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what you're saying here is that the the way to make good combat encounters is to make it give the players viable options other than I roll firearms to hit the target. And that is something that I, at its core, I'm all about that. I think that I'm always about giving players another way to deal with things besides shooting it. So I'm, I'm going to take a kind of a detour, but we're gonna, it's going to get back to Delta Green, but indulge me for a moment here. Uh, in the Star Wars role-playing game, the most current Fantasy Flight version, um, a lot of people think that space combat is like the worst part of the game. And I was in that camp for a long time. Because when you get into space combat, you just roll space piloting or space shooting until everything's dead. I, I am one of those people who believes that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you played the game. You've been through a couple sessions with me, at least. I don't know if you played it with anyone else. But what I have learned over the course of trying to get better at that game, because it's probably, it's probably tied with Double Green as my favorite role-playing game, and I wish I could do more of it, um, is the problem with space combat is you have to make sure everybody has something to do. So you have to look at the Millennium Falcon and like the in the in the a New Hope where they're in that first asteroid scene. You've got you know Chewie trying to pilot, Han and Luke are trying to gunnery the ship, and then the ship takes a hit. And like C three PO and Leia are trying to like fix the ship. So most of those people are not rolling combat skills; they're doing other things that make the make the narrative better, which is very difficult. And I think it makes it easier. It's at the higher threshold as a handler or as a game master because you have to keep everything going and make sure all your players are engaged. It's also a higher threshold than the players because they have to know or they have to be somewhat aware of all the different things they might be able to do with their characters. So they got to be really engaged with it. But when it works, I think it makes space combat wicked awesome. However, I think it has a higher chance of failure than just not doing space combat. So it's a high risk, high reward thing. Well, here's the problem with, with that in the context of the Star Wars game is that if I do that in a game session okay i'm trying to fix the ship do i how many dice do i have in fixed ship how many dice do i have in jam comms because in the film they don't subject the characters to those constraints because why the hell would you you're not going to have a scene where luke tries to fix the you know he tries to shoot the tie fighter and he fails because he doesn't have enough dice in shoot the tie fighter but in the star wars rpg it's a dice pool system, so unless you have stacked your chance to success to high heaven, letting anything could happen, you could end up doing as just as much harm as you do good. That's somewhat true, although there are that game does have a lot of ways to give other people dice through uh, ma- being good at whatever you're good at. Like I, I was thinking about this, and they they try their best to design all the classes so that they have a little bit of everything. Like the scoundrel or rapscallion, whatever the hell his name is, is good at flying the plane but also at shooting the gun and also at talking to the people he's kind of got a little bit of everything he's like the, he's like the federal agent of star wars he's the he's the core class that can do a little bit of everything but then you get like the diplomat or you know the scientist or whatever some of those people aren't that useful in some situations and that's why that's the other reason why i dislike space combat is not just because it's only rolling dice but because it's essentially saying we're playing a different game now and i hope you bought brought someone who has applicable skills because otherwise you're going to be sitting there waiting for something to do that's kind of on the handler or the gm isn't it to present challenges that are tailored to the player's skill sets i completely agree which is why i think that that game shouldn't ha- should have a lot less space combat in it so uh that's certainly valid 
Uh, and I'm going to make one, one more quick comment, and then I, I want to try to steer it back to Delta Green, unless we're going to try to spin off our uh, our Green Box podcast about uh, Star Wars, the role-playing game called... Uh, space Night at the Opera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or Night called at the Space Opera, damn it. Night at the Space Opera. So you, you said like a diplomat may not be good, but the diplomat has all these ways uh, to use their command skill, leadership skill to help everyone else be better. Uh, which, again, does require that all the players know their class and also know the stuff they can do, which is a higher skill ceiling. Um, and there may be newer players who don't have that or don't, haven't you know, had the chance to get more points and whatnot. But what I'm trying to get at is that if you bring it back to Delta Green, uh, if you have a, character, if you have a, a game where you want to have somebody fly in the helicopter and somebody shooting the guns, somebody disarming the bomb, you, know, you mentioned you know, 45 minutes ago, before my before my tangent, you mentioned that uh, everybody just wants to shoot because it's the quickest, most efficient way to get it out to get out of there because you don't want to give up your action. But if the bomb is still ticking down and you only have like four actions to disarm it, then you really have to decide between shooting and disarming the bomb. And hopefully, if somebody has the skills in that, maybe they're a better bomb disarmer than they are a firefighter. But you're definitely putting a lot on the handler to make sure that that all can come together. I think if you want to enable that, you need to be a lot more flexible with the action economy because otherwise, it's I want to disable the bomb. All right, spend one turn moving, spend one turn opening the door, and on the third turn, you can start the process. And meanwhile, the guys who are shooting have already done, you know, 4d12 damage in that time period. I think there's room in Delta Green to be a little more fluid with the action economy. I, 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 I agree, to. because I understand that the initial intent of having the action economy be very, um, like, one action per turn was to keep things moving, but I think it incentivizes certain actions over others very strongly. Uh, and I will say, so when I try to be fluid in the back of my mind, I try to very there's a there's, there's like a the, the you know the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder where I want to make sure that it's fluid for the players, but I'm not screwing them by making it fluid for the enemies too, but that I'm not giving them too much of an advantage where the enemies don't get the same ability to fight back because it would be I would be annoyed if I got like unfairly killed because I think there was too much narrative going on and I was like, but I get to roll for this, you know, I I, I should have had an action in between there. So that's a, I'm always a little wary about that. Yeah, that's that's the 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 reason that we have the reason why games have such detailed rules for combat in the first place is because it's the highest stakes. It's the place where the players can get killed, and so they want to understand what they're getting into. They want a heck, they want a hedge against arbitrariness. They want a set of expectations that um, is agreed on beforehand. One of the things I like about Mission, that Mission Impossible, and you should if you should check it out, I liked it. Um, if you like the movies, is that one of the points that I always try to make in when someone is like a super spy, like a Jason Bourne or a, a Mission Impossible Ethan Hunt guy, is that they always tend to have a love interest who is always like the perfect leverage for the bad guys. And it's like you just if you're going to be in this like super secret world with espionage, you just can't be with anyone because they will become targets who you can't protect. Which I think is true of Delta Green, but Delta Green also gives you the Bond system, so you really are encouraged to have people you care about because bonds are important. One of the things that you can do in Delta Green is you can use bonds as like a le- lever on the player. You can kind of put them in harm's way like they do in all those movies. But that can kind of be a dick move because it's kind of an outside of the game mechanic. Well, so the, basically one of the reasons that I've seen cited many times by people, maybe not maybe cited is the wrong word because it's not like a peer-reviewed paper. But one of the reasons I hear a lot anecdotally for why people don't want to put backstories on their RPG characters is because they think that any backstory they give is just, you know, the wife is going to get killed, the village is going to get burned down. Yeah, it's always a, a, like a, some sort of tragic path that has set them on this road to redemption. Well, but, well, no, it's, it's, that, it's that they specifically don't want to give the GM a stick to hit them with, is their concern. 
and I don't. I think that Bonds and Delta Green need to be more than just that because it's fun to see how the the actions of the player character destroy the relationship with the friends and family. But I think that if it's just too, if it's if it is out of their control to the point where it feels almost arbitrary, then you've lost something. So you want to find a space where they are affected by the action of the game, but it's not just rocks fall, your dad dies. Yeah, that's that's very valid. And I think if you look, I think the the like special operator, I think they're one of the only professions that start with only one bond. Special operator starts with two bonds. Start, oh, but then if you give them the uh, uh, there there's a there are a variety of because one of the things that Delta Green has is that it has uh, several dozen variations on the generic shoot man profession, and some of those variations have only one bond. So a coral nomad parajumper has one bond. A marine raider, I think, has one bond. Yeah, and you can also lose bonds through some of the um, damaged veterans. Uh, as well, correct? I think. Yes. Yeah. To 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 do a a hard experience. I know about this game that I play and run games for. I promise. Uh, so I feel like somebody like who somebody only has like the one bond is a little more insulated from the shenanigans of a movie plot where your loved ones are used against you. But I think in the Mission Impossible movies and in gameplay, it can be a good lever if it's used narratively well and if the player's actions to put that person in danger rather than the arbitrary callings of the scenario. Aaron, you were the one who brought this article to our attention. Do you have other um, concrete details or points of interest from it that you would like to put forward? Uh, not from the article, but in it reminded me of something from Knights Black Agents by Ken Height, where he's talking about, in his GM advice about the structure of a thriller, he says a big part of it is uh, f- learning new information puts your character in a danger, but then your reward for putting yourself into danger is more information. And so maybe that's a good structure to try and uh, to try and emulate in a scenario is that when your players learn something significant, then there's a small action scene or some kind of physical threat, not enough to kill them, but enough to put them on the back foot and make them react. And because they know someone's working against them, that in turn drives them forward to figure out what's going on. Actually, would be really interested to learn about some ways where you can kind of like rock a player back on their feet without turning into a straight fi- firefight or without just killing a player. Because combat can be so deadly, you almost need to find a non-combat way to do it. And because combat can be so deadly, if the players decide to shoot back, then your your rock back is just they've just killed somebody and you lose the intended punch. So, do you have any good examples, or can we think of any good examples of ways to kind of make that pushback happen without making it just another firefight? Knights Black Agents actually has an entire list of these for uh, when the conspiracy discovers them and starts fighting back as they start uncovering the structure of this conspiracy, where at the very early stages, they're just spying on the players. They have someone tailing them. They're trying to look into their backgrounds. Maybe they will send a couple of like really weak thugs to attack them, but not like they'll only attack with their fists and try to beat them up on the street. And so from that, they'll learn how much do the players react or how do they overreact. I feel like every Delta Green player would respond to being beat up with fists with guns. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a federal agent. If you assault a federal agent, you get dead. That's yeah, right. Well, even if you're playing a lawyer with a gun, you're going to shoot back. But uh, yeah, so this is a stand your ground state. What else is on that list? So some of the really low level examples are they will actually offer a bribe or perform a favor for one of the players. If they back off the conspiracy, they will try to frame the, the player for some of their crimes. And then as you start to 
go further in the campaign and become more of a threat. They will kill someone you hate in order to frame you for that person's murder. They will start to threaten your bonds. They will present they will present a fake ally for you who supposedly wants to turn against the conspiracy but is really just a, a mole in your group and then that then they start to do things where they will start to ambush you they will start to kill your bonds they will hire assassins to go after you things like that uh, i'd like these and i think i realized that my my main pushback against them is all use no time to do this in this scenario but if you look at it like a multiple scenario campaign then you could totally do these and i think you could really provide that kind of pushback rock on their heels moment that you're looking for with players that wouldn't result in a gunfight so i like that for a longer form campaign yeah knight's black agents has a lot of mechanics and stuff that is explicitly geared towards campaign play but yeah so that rhythm of the players learn something new or they cross paths with the bad guys and then the bad guys immediately act out and try to get the measures of the players is something i want to try and do more of because then you get that natural escalation it also kind of ties in a little bit with a set piece that you wrote melon which is uh i'm gonna get this wrong the first time so you'll have to correct me and i'll take this again but it's a blade in the dark knife in the dark knife in the blade we've done a whole bit on this <laughs> and you said there's both the same to me when instead of saying that you could have gone back and read what i posted and then you would know. It's, it's I even gave far too far away. I gave like a, like two or three lines of exposition about the origin of the name of the set piece, tracking it all the way back from the attack used by the skeleton in Darkest Dungeon to a chapter in one of the Lord of the Rings books. It's not in the dark, by the way. Yeah. So uh, describe for the listeners what this set piece does. So yeah, Melonbread, you wrote a set piece called Knife in the Dark, and what's interesting about this is that it's when the and I'll paraphrase, you can fill in the blanks if I screw it up, but the bad guy realizes the, that the Delta Green agents are onto them, and instead of attacking them overtly, they send they, they send a, a hypnotized or a magic uh, human, you know, kind of pawn after them, basically hoping that the players will overreact, gun this person down, and then be stuck trying to clean up this innocent person's murder, which is a great way to just throw them off the scent of the real case. And it has to be a place where, you know, they've, it's like a hotel or something where they've already been seen, so people already know they're there, so they can't deny it or anything. Yeah, a hotel they've been at for a few days, or like the mall they've been staking out, it's around 500 security cameras, stuff like that. Yes, it's a way to fuck with the players without, I mean, and I say fuck with them, because that's not necessarily your goal. Your goal is to show that the world is reacting to them in a way that doesn't just roll firearms. Although, and I mean, this in this case, it's uh, specifically... The idea is that the opposition has noticed that they that they are basically unstoppable in a firefight and has said, we're not going to try and stop you by shooting at you because clearly that doesn't work. We're going to try and stop you by getting you to shoot at somebody you're not supposed to. So yeah, that's a, it's a, it, it works in this context as something. The other thing, the thing though is that, is that even if it works from the perspective of it fulfills the same purpose, it does have the same problem as everything we mentioned earlier of basically monopolizing the session. Where unless you're unless you're prepared to kind of write it out of the way, it's going to be front and center when the players do it. Yeah, for sure. Especially if they get caught up in a investigation and have to cover their tracks or deal with it that way. Which is fine because that's the, the purpose is for it to be disruptive. But I'm saying that this isn't something you would do in a one-shot that you planned on getting out of the way. This is something that you would do in a, a game where you had 
room to meander. Yeah, I agree. So we've given, or we've talked quite a bit, of, uh, again, on the, like, the handler center side of things. I just want to kind of briefly touch on ways as a player you can make combat more interesting. Because I know as a handler, trying to track all these 8,000 things can be kind of a pain. Uh, I had somebody at one of my Gen Con games who, uh, because they were nice, well, when we got into combat, they took down everyone's initiative. So it took it out of my hands. And that was It didn't feel like a lot, but it actually was a huge burden to not have to track who's gone just to know what's next, like who's on deck. And if you don't have a player to do that, or if you're as a player, you can't do that. You can always, as a handler, have some sort of like initiative tracker that does it for you. But another little piece of advice I would probably give. There was a, an OSR blog of some kind that had advice for running games with really huge numbers of players. And one of the advice that this guy gave was delegate a lot of stuff. So delegate initiative tracking, delegate remembering how much loot there is and stuff and what its disposition is and how heavy it is. Delegate all that stuff. And I think when you delegate, you also force the players to be engaged. Like if they're trying, if they're tracking initiative, then they can't be looking at their phone half the time. So if they're engaged, then one, things will go quicker. So you're not in this uh for a long time and also it'll go more smoothly and people will know what they're doing and who's on deck and that kind of thing so and i would say the other piece of advice and i'd like to see if you guys have any uh from a player side of things is and i'm just as guilty as anyone else of this but if if i'm if i'm a player and i just say all right you know how many bad guys are there three all right and i can hit all of them with a full auto yeah okay well i'll do that i'll roll up oh, it's the it's the i hit i'm gonna roll lethality oh, i got him cool what's next that, that you have like you give the handler and the other players had a no narrative wiggle room to explain what's happening or make things interesting. So obviously you, you don't want to monologue with your character for five minutes, but even something as simple as ex- explaining how, I, instead of I die behind cover, explaining that you like, you know, uh, if you're like a Navy SEAL type guy, you like tactical roll or like knee pad slide into cover or bring your gun up and you quickly search for the bad guys and, you know, rattle off a couple rounds. Just a, a tiny bit, a sprinkle there of just something different. Players who disengage because they've heard... I roll firearms 500 times, they're bored. When they hear other stuff happening, they're likely to re-engage. And, oh, wait, what's happening? Oh, cool. Uh, what What is this? I want to get in on this, you know? Um, so sprinkling in a little bit of narrativeness can, I think, spice up combat. And again, I'm this is preaching to, preaching to the choir who doesn't follow church rules uh, because I am guilty of not doing this pretty often. So it's something I want to get better at. I think that I've been on both sides of this coin. I think it's good to have better narrative descriptions than just, you know, I roll firearms with the man. I think that's important. However, I have also been in cases where I have gotten so, so frustrated with a DM who every missed attack, there was this elaborate narrative justification for why the D20 roll didn't go the way I wanted it to. And the first time it was cool, but then after the third or fourth time, I was like, you know what? I'm thinking to myself, uh, what if we let the next guy take his turn? I pull my 45 Colt long slide out of my holster. As the as the chrome clears leather, it glints in the in the moon's light. It's a waning moon, a waning gibbous moon. The creature's eyes glint darkly as I take aim down the front side. You know that that's too much. The other thing is that I don't want to give too much elaborate narrative justification before I do any rolls, because otherwise there's a chance I just fall flat on my ass, and all that description's kind of wasted. That's true. Uh, another another part, just to add on to what I said earlier, if if you have two people who've worked together before. Or to people who are like combat oriented, and then you have players who aren't. The players who are combat experienced, who in reality would take control of the situation, remember that it's a free action to shout at your partners. So you can say stuff like, like you know, you know, Doctor Smith, get into cover, keep your head down. You know, even a little bit of that adds a little bit to the action without making a ridiculous diatribe. That's fair. I do worry about um, 
too much it's too much quarterbacking sometimes though when it's all about a character telling and i, I mean I, i'm really trying to stress like a little goes a long way and a lot yeah ruins, yeah. ruins this but you know it would make sense if the Navy SEAL would immediately t- kind of like start yelling kind of commands like cover me, I'm reloading. And like even that will drop, will force a player back into engaging and can be a cool little, little bit there. Heron, any thoughts on how to, how to keep combat engaging or useful as a player? I would say that instead of what we talked about before about asking the GM a million questions and slowing things down, just kind of, it doesn't even have, yeah, a little bit what you said is just, Take that narrative description for yourself and ask the GM, hey, is it okay if this is here, if this is true about the environment, and then just capitalize off that? Because then it becomes more collaborative and you're keeping things moving forward and adding exciting new details that other people can bounce off of. I'm going to sound like a broken record here, um, but this is a great example of, and I think I'm probably going to put this together, even though I talked about not doing it once, is... Like if, if we're playing a game and you your character wants to knock over a table to get behind for cover, and I haven't told you there's a table in the room, just tell me. But you're in a kitchen, just tell me you knock over the table. That's awesome. If if you do something totally crazy, I'll stop and be like, "Hey, that was cool, but uh, this is a universe with no tables. Tables don't exist. They haven't been invented yet." But I want players to add little bits to the narrative. But I think if they don't know that that's okay, they won't they won't try it. So that almost needs to be in like my player briefing of like, hey, add cool details. I the reason why I'm so obsessive about this stuff is that I just realized why it is is because I play in a game environment with an open table that basically has no shared expectations. Other than we're playing Delta Green, there's no opportunity except through repeat play with certain people to build a shared understanding of what the game should be like. So I basically feel that I have to rederive the whole experience from first principles every time, and that pushes me towards certain modes of play that are more forgiving of people not all being on the same page. Yeah, and maybe that's something to work towards a solution on, or maybe that's just the price we pay for having a bunch of people to play with all the time. This, yeah, the, the price that you pay for having lots and lots of Delta Green games with lots of different people is that you need to build a mode of play that is does not depend on having the same, even a single person repeat across multiple sessions. You need to take everything that relies on that and find ways to make it not rely on that. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I always keep dismissing things that, you know, require thought or require um, a lot of, uh, you know, the players doing a specific thing that's cool and works with the handler's understanding of the world, because I can never guarantee that I'm going to have that. So in, 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 a, in a, a really big way, a lot of my advice and thoughts about this stuff are not necessarily that effective for the basic use case that most people will be encountering. Now, uh, if you're running games at your RPG store or like running a demo game or a con game, then I think that everything that I say applies 100%. But I will, I'm recognizing right now that a lot of the stuff that I think about this game is shaped by a very atypical play experience. And and I think some of that can be mitigated by, again, just kind of like a player briefing in the beginning. I'm definitely guilty of jumping right into games, and I think it would be better. You know, we talked about playing to lift. Give, taking that, that first 10 minutes to have everybody explain who they are, how, what they want to play, be played to lift as, or, or what they want played to lift, you know, what the expectations are. Even as simple as like, hey, this is going to be a two or three hour session. We'll take a quick break in the middle, or there's no room for a break, you know, take five now, etc., might go a long way, and I think I'm just usually too eager to jump in, so I can definitely benefit from kind of having a little brief written down ahead of time. 
I think the important thing is to really just keep things fast and to try and strike a balance between letting the players have the initiative and having whoever your bad guys are put the players on the back foot and force them to react. So I would say the most important thing is, yeah, plate spinning. Make sure there's something for everybody to do, even if it isn't even if it isn't use firearms on person, especially as if it isn't firearms in person. And keep in mind that the rule of thrillers, more information gets you danger, but danger delivers you more information. That's all we have for you this week. In the description of this episode, you'll find links to all our social media pages. Tweet us at 9mm Retirement with some of your best tabletop sound effects or background music. You'll also find a link to the Night of the Opera subreddit and Discord server. Drop in and say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to episode 24 of The Green Box. We'll be in touch. <laughs>